This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, yes, I am back. Your intrepid host has been attending to affairs of state at home and abroad these past few weeks. Over Memorial Day weekend, we served up the full uncut hour of our conversation with House of Cards executive producer Bo Willimon. And noting how Netflix continues to enroll millions of new members, that conversation was as relevant in May as it was when the downloads first started streaming earlier in the year. Then last week, I was thoroughly entertained, as I hope you were, when my friend Matt Bennett eased into the chair as guest host, which he may do from time to time. I loved Matt's talk with Air Force General Richard Klump about his service as the military aide for Vice Presidents Gore and Cheney. And Matt's talk with Stuart Connolly was perhaps even more revealing, bringing us behind the curtain at Martin Luther King's iconic I Have a Dream speech at the base of the Lincoln Memorial at the March in Washington now, an amazing 50 years ago this summer. We have some special things lined up for later in the show, but after a few weeks steeped in entertainment and history here on the show, we'll start by returning to the knitting of polyoptics, the goings-on at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and everywhere the current president travels to use one term, contemporary history. What's my contemporary history? In the last few weeks, I've been on a plane to London, to Switzerland, to San Francisco, and now back here in New York. And in that time, in that hollow aluminum tube, I've done some reading. At the top of the list, The Center Holds, Obama and His Enemies by Jonathan Alter, also the author of The Promise, about President Obama's first year in office, and The Defining Moment, about FDR's first hundred days. At my most recent stop in San Francisco, I had a chance to hear the Lessons Learned lecture by President Obama's triumphant campaign manager, Jim Messina. To hear Jim's talk and to look at his slides, you'd think that the army he assembled in Chicago in 2011 and 2012 executed flawlessly with nary a a hair out of place or a nose rubbed out of joint. So let's find out. Here in our studio, straight from the Colbert Report and Charlie Rose, by way of bear-infested Montclair, New Jersey, (laughs) is the aforementioned Mr. Alter. Welcome, sir, to Polyoptics. Thanks, Josh. Uh, is that bear uh, the one, same one that Hal Reine was talking about during Reagan's 84 You know, uh, Hal Reine is in this book, In the Center Holds, uh, in a way that I'll explain in a minute if you want. Um, but it's funny that you mention that because this bear was literally three blocks from where we live. And Montclair is only 12 miles outside Manhattan. So uh, you're getting pretty close to a, a bear climbing the Empire State Building or something like, uh, like you know, King Kong. But I kept when I was tweeting about it I, I had the hell Reine line in my head I, I was about to tweet there's a bear in my woods <laughs> but but then I thought no nobody's gonna get that and they're gonna think that even when it comes to a bear I always have to talk about politics which is the rap on me anyway so I, I restrained myself give but. the Twitter sphere some credit because I I immediately <laughs> made the analogy thinking about the conversation we were yeah. gonna have yeah I'm glad you did um, so and Hal Hal Reine is in uh, is in this book because uh, you know for those in your audience who who might not remember him he had he was not only an, an ad maker uh, for uh, all kinds of different products and and politicians uh, but he had one of the great voiceover voices um, of all time. Uh, 
And he may not just, there's a bear in the woods. Some people say he's a nice bear. Not only that famous ad, but but also um, uh, he was part of what was called the Tuesday team in 1984, which made a lot of famous ads for Ronald Reagan's reelection campaign. And amazingly enough, when Stuart Stevens was assembling his Mad Men in Boston, that was Stuart's description of his people, um, he got uh, a couple of guys who came from that Tuesday team. And that's how old the Romney campaign was. Meanwhile, there's these 27-year-olds in uh, in Chicago. And uh, during the course of the campaign, when I was talking to Ed Rollins one time, I, I asked him uh, this past year about that Hal Reine ad, and he said, yeah, that was a great ad, and Hal was drunk the whole time. <laughs> you know, I still He's watch... He's dead now, so I can I say still that, watch right? that damn thing. Uh, yeah. I still watch Morning in America, and I show it to uh, my teams. I show it to corporate groups that I talk to in terms of great storytelling mixture of voice, music, imagery, uh, yeah. and, and that it holds up. And then I thought that Obama in 2008, at the beginning of his 30-minute infomercial, he was definitely uh, channeling Hal Reine, uh Margolis and company as they yeah. put that imagery together. Well, they want, and they wanted in 2012, their fondest dream was to do a Morning in America spot, and then they could kind of go for the burn, go for the Reagan re-election, and really you know, end this Tea Party thing once and for all with a big win. But what happened was when they went into the focus groups and they started to say, you know, uh, Things are getting better, right? Things are looking up. It's almost morning in America. And they would almost be spat upon by everybody in the focus group saying, don't tell us things are better. Tell us what you might do to make things less worse, to improve things, but don't tell us that we're back, that America's back, and that it's morning in America because it ain't in my house. And they just got slam dunked on that as a campaign theme pretty early on and were not able to do anything like that. Uh, so they had to uh, thread the needle on their message. And I have a chapter in the center holes on, on um, you know, uh, what um, a message built to last because they, the, the one that they settled on was, even though Obama abandoned it pretty quickly, but was an economy built to last or a make or break moment for the middle class to, to put it in terms of the struggle rather than the country uh, being um, back and it being morning again. Right. Let's go back to some of the early part of your book, The Center Holds, and the picture that you paint of, of Teddy Goff, Harper Reed, the people in the cave, the Golden Report, having just watched Messina's lecture. Uh, share with our listeners the way it was structured and, and what made it different from... Why is this campaign different from all other campaigns? <laughs> it sounds like Passover. It is. Um, so... Um, for maybe a hundred years, a very long time, all campaigns had essentially the same structure. You had a field organization. You had advance to go ahead of where the candidate was going. You My had, specialty. Right. You had press. You had operations, fundraising, uh, and uh, you know media, making TV ads, radio ads. Starting in nineteen, starting in two thousand four, accelerating in two thousand eight, and then exploding in two thousand twelve, you had digital. Now, in the case of the Obama campaign, uh, they had not one but three digital 
departments, um, the largest of which had more than 250 people in it. Uh, and they were respectively Tech, which was run by Harper Reed, who came from Threadless, the t-shirt company, is an expert in cloud computing. Digital, which was run by Teddy Goff, a uh, 28-year-old New Yorker. Harper Reed is a kind of a famous hipster uh, with a, a very distinctive look. Uh, and then the third um, was Analytics. And Analytics was run by Dan Wagner. You might have read about him recently. He was just hired by Eric Schmidt, uh, given a lot of money to start a new company. And Dan Wagner took his people outside of the floor, the main open floor plan where the Obama campaign was headquartered in Chicago in the Prudential Building. And they were in a uh, windowless room, small windowless room that was nicknamed the cave. And when uh, Peggy Noonan made fun of analytics and data scientists being in politics uh, and said that they were like people from Mars, they put a huge picture of Mars on the wall. And the cave was made up of data scientists, but also uh, professional poker players, a biophysicist, a child prodigy, a, a motley correct collection of geeks. And there was a huge geek gap between the Romney campaign and the Obama campaign. Because Schmidt came up to Messina, or when Messina made the rounds around Silicon Valley, the one piece of advice he got was, of the people that you hire for this billion-dollar enterprise, make sure a large percentage of them have never worked in politics before. That was bad advice. Now, I didn't actually nail Schmidt for that, but that turned out to be wrong because there was what I call trouble in digital paradise. Which is and, not and everything the, was har- harmonious Not in everything Chicago. was harmonious. So the people who came, there was a huge culture clash. So the people who came from outside of politics really didn't work very well, and they didn't get it on a lot of different levels. The people who ended up being the most successful were those who were very tech-savvy and had worked in analytics at the DNC or had some kind of political connection. Uh, and then some others who, um, you know, worked closely in tandem with them. Um, but the ones who were trying to build new products without respecting the uh, existing vendors in the Democratic Party, um, a lot of them failed. They would say things like, well, why do we want to use build a product related to email? Email such a 1997 technology. Who cares about that? Of course, email, the 20 million emails that that, that made up their, their famous email list, that those were the crown jewels of the campaign. Uh, and, and that was the, the, the stuff of the greatest political organization ever built. Uh, and these guys also, many of them were very talented. Some of them worked out very, very well. But generally, that department uh, delivered their products very late. And it was more digital, which did a lot of the online fundraising and took increased it tenfold from 15 to $150 million on, a month online, which is astonishing, and did these very innovative online videos. And The Cave, which built these analytical models that, that transform politics. They were and, the ones who delivered. And it's one thing to test a lot, do a lot of A-B testing on direct mail, on fundraising email pitches. It's another thing to marry that up with door-knocking data and help field canvassers make the best use of their time outside the office. Right. right? So th- what you're talking about is the, what David Axelrod told me was the key to this campaign, which was matching up technology with shoe leather 
as you say, the door knockers to the models. Now, they wouldn't be connected necessarily to the email solicitations, although everything was integrated so that, you know, if somebody knocked on a door and somebody said, yeah, I'd like to give some money to, then that would go into the same database. Whereas in 2008, everybody had their own database, each department, and they didn't talk to each other a lot of the time. So one of the first things Messina wanted to do is to to kind of sync everything. Um, but what I found uh, beyond the fundraising that it, I found at all completely fascinating, and my goal, since I'm not really a tech person myself, um, I had to ask a lot of questions and keep forcing them to translate what they were telling me from the original geek into English. Let's just do a quick sidebar on process because your pedigree is from so many years at Newsweek and Newsweek's style was to embed people in the course of the campaign who could not report contemporaneously but would save it for the Newsweek book at the end of the campaign. Were you getting this kind of access and able to do this kind of reporting as the 2011-2012 was playing out? Not in the cave. The cave where the analytics people was was entirely secret. And actually, Eric Schmidt of Google was the only outsider of any kind, um, one person in the entire campaign who was, uh, during the campaign, who was allowed in there. So the reporting on the analytics and the way they built what they called support models on uh, 180 million Americans to figure out, you know, on 1 to 100, if you were an 82, it meant you had an 82% chance of uh, supporting Obama. That I had to do after the election. And they actually really discouraged book writers this time from um, from doing our work during the campaign. And they, they tried to instruct uh, uh, Obama staffers and White House aides not to talk to book writers. But because I've known a lot of them for a long time, I was able to get around that for the most part. And Your acknowledgments section hints at some frustrations you had at yeah. getting through to Axelrod, Valerie. No, no, I had no frustrations with Axelrod. As I, sh- I, I also made clear in the introduction, both David Axelrod of the Obama campaign and Stuart Stevens of uh, the Romney campaign were a- accessible to me any day at you know whenever I wanted, and I yeah. spoke to them very regularly. And I also spoke. Uh, think three times to Valerie Jarrett. Um, no, it was the lower down people um, who they, uh, you know, didn't fully trust to talk. And I always like to talk to the, the middle level people who are actually doing a lot of the work. So I had no trouble at all talking to, you know, Axelrod. Uh, you, you mentioned Jim Margolis uh, earlier or... Joel Benenson, your Joel, neighbor from Joel Benenson from Montclair. Montclair is a, a good friend of mine. Uh, or... Uh, you know, uh, Stuart Stevens, as I said, I was in touch with all the time. Or uh, Pete Rouse in the White House, who uh, has been very open about the fact that, uh, you know, we're friendly. Um, so, um, but I, there were people that I really wanted to talk to who I had to wait until after the election. But I finally got to them, and that was fine. So let me make a premise that as advanced as as uh, Messina's campaign was, in some ways, it was a um, compensation for uh, the fact that the principal, the candidate on the stump, was not like Clinton, Reagan, or one of the focuses of your earlier work, uh, The Defining Moments. Let's hear Franklin Roosevelt at his inauguration day. This great nation will endure as it has endured will revive and will prosper. So first of all, 
let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Now it's written that Barack Obama was reading uh, the defining moments uh, before he, uh, or the defining moment before he took office in 2009, uh, and but was, you were also told that he was sort of obsessed by a much later piece by Ezra Klein about whether the bully pulpit matters much at all. So you're such a student of FDR and the way he came into office, and now with your second book on Obama, the way he has managed his bully pulpit. Compare and contrast. <laughs> uh... Well, um, yes, you're you're right, and I'm just delighted that you're um, bringing up the defining moment, which was published seven years ago. Uh, I did a whole chapter in that book on the inaugural that we just heard and the preparation of it. A lot of it was written by FDR himself, interestingly, even though his aide Raymond Moley claimed to have written most of it. Um, and. Um, they're just great stories about where the line came from. Some people thought it came from a department store ad. <laughs> the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Uh, Obama has an allergy to sound bites, but sound bites going back to a house divided against itself cannot stand Abraham Lincoln or even, you know, the gospel. What What is... What is Jesus Christ supposedly t speaking in sound bites? And this is the way human beings absorb information. They don't absorb a whole paragraph, and Obama writes some beautiful paragraphs. They absorb a sentence, a phrase, and he somehow thinks that um, what you specialize in, in the optics, uh, the theatricality of politics, is a little bit beneath him, uh, and he understands its importance. And he understood when he was he understood when he was running for president that he needed to uh, master that. And actually, years before that, when he was first going into politics, he would go to black churches to listen to sermons and to learn how to become a great speaker. And uh, I remember uh, I was I'm from Chicago, and you know I, I met Obama uh, when he was a state senator. And I have a lot of people who have been lifetime family friends who go back very early with him, including uh, my uh, father and my late mother. And I'm told, I, I didn't know him in the 90s, but I'm told he wasn't a good speaker then. And he kind of built himself into a good speaker. But he ultimately considers things like debating to be... Um, irrelevant to what the presidency is really about. And he does not understand, as FDR did intuitively and masterfully, that the presidency is a theater. And you must perform in the theater of the presidency to, be, to make full use of the office. Um, but he exploits other media. So where Roosevelt mastered radio and Kennedy and Reagan mastered television, Obama has mastered the Internet as a form of communication. And he isn't bad <laughs> at giving a speech when, to you know, come up with one of these basketball metaphors that he uses all the time, 
when he has to hit, you know, the three-pointer at the buzzer, he usually does. In the second debate, he came to play, and he was good. Um, it's just that it's it's learned behavior for him, not something that he feels naturally, and it's not something that he cares that much about ultimately because he thinks it's somehow a uh, cosmetic or optic part of the presidency, and the real presidency is what he's doing at you know, 11 o'clock at night, preparing rigorously for the meeting the next day, drilling down into a decision at that meeting, having a deliberative process that really gets the right policy response. And David Pluff said to me uh, at one point when I was when I was researching the center holds that, you know, Obama maybe should have been president of Scandinavia, where they were unemotional and uh, and rational. And instead, he's living in an emotional and irrational time. And Pluff should have been working in Scandinavia, too. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Given what we know about David Pluff, I think you're right. Let's hear another one of uh, President Obama's predecessors, Ronald Reagan, comparing the, the trip that Obama made in Berlin in 2008 to the one that uh, Reagan made when he said this. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That was a great, great line that almost didn't make it. You know, uh, it was cut. That line was cut from Reagan's speech more than once. And the president, President Reagan, kept putting it back in. Uh, and we haven't... Now, he was an actor, so you yep. have to account for that. But... Um, we haven't had quite that kind of moment, although there have been some times when President Obama has been in the role of mourner-in-chief uh, where he has gotten to that, a little bit of that emotional pitch. And even in the most recent State of the Union address, when he said, give them a vote, give them a vote, let them vote. And we heard him talking about it with judges again recently. And and that, that became a refrain that, that resonated. So he's capable of doing this. And on occasion, he does do it. It's not like he's a, a completely, uh, you know, inept communicator. It's just that it's sporadically effective. And it doesn't often seem as strategic as it could be. But your book, The Center Holds, Obama and His Enemies, has, for me, some very interesting uh, writing about his use of the device, the teleprompter. And, uh, you know, it's a family affair in the Alter Lazar house. A, a, a teleprompter is very much at the heart of how Stephen Colbert is so successful that, that your wife works on. And it's you write in, in a way that his work with speechwriter uh, John Favreau was, let's write these gorgeous paragraphs so that I can see them. And you have a photograph in the picture section of your book that shows Obama not looking out at an audience the way any orator might, the way Reagan did. Uh, and Reagan used a teleprompter, too, for, for that speech in Berlin. But when you see him just looking at this glass and you m make the calculus as a guy like Mark Knoller might about how many hundreds of times he's used that 
a couple times a day, the teleprompter, and you compare it with the change in cadence, pacing, thoughtfulness that he might after Newtown, for example, or Clinton might just using his cards. There's a real difference between a guy who's not doing it for acting's sake, just reading, but trying to look up versus really getting into the moment and getting into the people who are well, in front of I think of that's a good point, Josh. And it's especially interesting because Obama's prized asset and one that I think he still has is his authenticity. And he's not a phony. He's not a BS artist. And I think that's one of the reasons he was elected and reelected, which you have to remember. That's We've been the, talking about Reagan. We've been talking about Clinton. He's the only Democrat since FDR who got a majority twice. Uh, so... You know, he's doing something right politically, um, but but the teleprompter it it does make him seem a little bit more uh, detached, and he's already arguably detached enough. So I think he is over reliant on it. I think he does it because it's easy, and he does and he sees these ceremonial parts of the job as being less important than the substantive parts of the job. Uh, but it must be said that there have been many presidents who have been heavily reliant on teleprompters. Clinton was the great exception. I remember seeing him give a speech once and thinking that he was using a teleprompter and then finding out that he wasn't. And it was like, that wasn't on the teleprompter? Are you kidding me? It came out like word perfect. Yeah. So that was a, that's a gift that Clinton has. Uh, and it's too much to expect other presidents to have it. But I, So I do think he was... Uh, a, too reliant on uh, the motherboards, you know, the um, the idiot boards, as Walter Mondale called them. Uh, LBJ called his teleprompter mother and his <laughs> aides. I talked to one of his old aides who joked that he would, didn't go anywhere without, without it mother. because he was didn't go anywhere without mother because he was not confident in his ability to be extemporaneous in, in public. But I also write in, in the center holds that... Uh, the criticism of Obama about the teleprompter by his enemies was so over the top and continues to be so over the top. I mean, some of it's comical, like like Sarah Palin attacking his use of a teleprompter from a speech delivered from a teleprompter. Uh, but so much of the rest of it, it got me kind of wondering, like, what is the motive for this? Is it that they don't have anything else to criticize them? I think in 2009, it was the single biggest, uh, you know, shot that was taken against the president. There were whole websites created to that subject. I mean, that's just nuts. I mean, they, they don't have anything else. And, and now some people really might object to this. And I'm not suggesting that everybody who you know, makes an issue of his use of the teleprompter has racial feelings or anything like that. But I would just submit to you, what is the subtext of harping on a president's use of the teleprompter? What is, he, what, what is the critic saying when they're saying that? They're saying that he can't uh, think on his feet, he can't speak for himself, he is the puppet of uh, his aides, which is something that Anybody who knows Barack Obama knows this BS, but why would the right wing think that that would resonate with their base, that he was the puppet of his aides? Well, like, strip that back. What's the subtext of that? That he's maybe not smart enough to function on his own without being having the strings being pulled by his aides. And why would they say that this man, head of the Harvard Law Review, 
anybody who knows him thinks he's an intellectual. Why would they say that he's not smart? Could it conceivably have anything to do with an old racist trope about African Americans? I just submit that as food for thought. Well, it's interesting uh, food, and there's another angle, too, which is more in the esoterica of polyoptics that I think about a lot, too, which is uh, President Reagan, uh, first President Bush, largely a lot of their events were Washington Hilton blue drape uh, flag backdrop. President Clinton, we got in there. He was more a more nimble uh, actor on the stage. We could do more physical things with him. I could design more things around him that used actual words and images to convey a picture uh, or a story in a minute without waiting for a headline caption writer to write the words for me. I'd put words in front of his signing tables, a balanced budget for a stronger America. The people who worked for Bush 43 took that many steps further, sometimes overkill, mission accomplished on board the Abraham Lincoln. It's very dangerous stuff if you misuse actual insertion of written message into a filmed or photographed event. So I see nothing of this in five years of Obama so far, incredibly little. And I think it goes to this mention in your book, which is he's a special president. He knows he walks a very thin line in terms of the way people could mock him, his his concern about making too many jokes in public, as you say, that aren't nicely scripted. Uh, and that you, I forget who you quote in your book, but his genu- his his warmth is maybe ratcheted back five percent or so, and the expression of what he does in his events is ratcheted back, so that he's not more uh, uh, pointed at for the fact that he's a unique president, uh, the first African American president. Right. So so uh, and. What's fascinating is what this does to him internally. Like um, one of his aides said that uh, there are a lot of pitches that he can't swing at in public. Right. Um, and if he if he does, he could, as you mentioned, he could cause some problems for himself. So he has to stifle himself to a certain extent and maybe react in private. But that that takes its toll. And and this person who is you know spent a lot of time with him, says it makes him 5% more aloof. Some people might say 10% more aloof than than he would be otherwise. Because he can, as you say, be a very warm person in, in private, but he's quite reserved in public a lot of the time. He also has a sense of the dignity of the presidency that he doesn't want to toy with too much. You say, you're quoted as saying, uh, essential neediness, an emotional hole many politicians are trying to fill that makes them crave attention is not something that President Obama has. When it's time for him to play golf, he prefers going out with Marv Nicholson rather than Tom Friedman, the way Clinton would. Right. I mean, that's changing maybe a little bit now. He played golf the other uh, week uh, with uh, Senators Corker and Chambliss. Um, but yes, he... he um, and this goes to his childhood, I think, as, as many things do. Um, he is uh, this strange combination of uh, abandonment and uh, unconditional love in his childhood, where his father, of course, left him, abandoned him, and his mother went was doing field research in Indonesia. She kind of abandoned him too, um, which led him to raise himself, which gave him a tremendous sense of self-reliance. But it didn't create the normal insecurities because both his mother and his grandparents worshipped him, gave him unconditional love. 
So he didn't have that kind of neediness that a lot of politicians have for one reason or another, and it's part of what self-selects. They self-select for political life uh, where that might be less lucrative, but they're getting uh, the glad handing is they're getting something that they need. They need that adulation, that affirmation, that sense of how great you are, that stroking, that you're wonderful. Obama doesn't need that. And it's very peculiar for other politicians to come into contact with somebody, much less a president, who really isn't built the same way that they are emotionally. And uh, so because he doesn't need it, the neediness of the other politicians is an abstraction to him. So he can be told, you know, you need to play golf with them. You need to call them up more. You need to schmooze them in Air Force One. But he's missing the schmooze gene. I've got a chapter in the book with that title, Missing the Schmooze Gene. He he can do it, and he's good at it when he has to, when he has to raise money or he's trying to get a bill passed. But it's not natural behavior. It's learned behavior, and that's going to make it less effective ultimately. And so he doesn't have these personal relationships, these fake friendships, if you will, in Washington for him to fall back on when he gets in trouble the way he is now. I found two things fascinating in that chapter. One was his head scratching at when aides would suggest that uh, would type out handwritten notes that he might transcribe in his own hand that they've written to hit all the high notes. And he'd look at them as if they were crazy, like, you want me to take this this typewritten thing and write it out in my own hand so they can look like someone got a handwritten note from the president? Right. Are you nuts? Well, no, he understood. He didn't think they were nuts. He just, what he didn't get is like why anybody would care that much because as Pete Rouse said to me, you know, he wouldn't care if he was in the Senate and he got a, or a congressman or, you know, a regular citizen and he got a, a letter from a big politician. You go, well, that's nice. But like, he wouldn't, think it was central to his identity or his his self-worth. So he can't really understand why these, especially when they've already got one. So what he'd like to, what he often says is, the guy's already got three pictures with me. Does he really need a fourth? He has not been in the the Josh King study with every shard of paper that Bill Clinton signed to me on a different spot in the wall. Right. So, so, most people need that. I, 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 if I was in your position, I would have. You collect memorabilia, sure, 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 and and Clinton did, and and a lot of other presidents. David Axelrod does, uh, and uh, but it's it's just not who he is. He um, it's not that he's not interested in history. Uh, he just uh, doesn't think that um, it's a great use of his time. And by the way, he's already doing a lot of it. Like he's signing stuff most of the day. It's not like he does none of this, right? Um, but but he's not a um, a hound for doing this. You know, like there are a lot of politicians who they they really like spending a night writing personal notes to people that they know slightly and pretending that they know them better. And Obama would rather be with his real friends rather than his fake friends. And there is a there is a a consequence to that because again, you know, if the presidency is a theater, it's also uh, in some ways uh, a, um, a, uh, a a place uh, that requires a certain kind of etiquette. And I, I asked Valerie Jarrett, like, you know, why don't you force him to write more of these letters? It would be good for his relations on Capitol Hill. And she said, I'm not here to teach him etiquette, you know. And he um, has his own way, but I think he now he's a very self-aware guy. 
And I think he recognizes that that didn't work so well for him in the first term. And that, and he said at a press conference in January that uh, now that Sasha and Malia are older, he's going to spend more time uh, trying to schmooze members of Congress. We'll see whether that sticks or not. Uh, Jonathan Alter, your your work, uh, the center holds, uh, is sprawling in what it attempts to talk about uh, so quickly after the campaign has ended. Uh, and so the headline is um, the center holds subhead is uh, Obama and his enemies so let's spend a few minutes on on the <laughs> okay. enemies list uh, and I know we're, we're on time so um, you, you mentioned first you you give some very interesting insight into Grover Norquist who you knew at Harvard uh, you talk uh, there's one little tidbit about how a guy who might be his friend Lamar Alexander complains a little bit about uh, his service aboard Air Force One, recalling Newt Gingrich and the infamous flight to Israel, and the White House trots out uh, actual photographs of him on Air Force One as if the, r- the right way to deal with that would be to, to lean into that and, and try and embrace Alexander more. And then you also talk in great detail about Roger Ailes, and that has been the subject of some uh, news reporting this week as the book has come out, the center holds. Uh, Tell us about the some of the personalities you put into the book as as the enemies of Obama, in particular, how you uh, approached Roger Ailes. Well, uh, you know, Fox News is is kind of the uh, the center of the uh, uh, conservative universe uh, and has been for some time. Um, so it was important that I devote at least one chapter out of twenty six to to Fox. Um, I like in these chapters to tell the backstory on these figures. Uh, so I have some things about you know where Grover Norquist came from, uh, where these super PAC billionaires uh, came from, and and uh, what Roger Ailes' uh, past is. Uh, but uh, Roger's a bully, and I've, I'm old enough now where I don't feel like I have to pretend that uh, people who are bullies uh, um, are great Americans. And I don't think he's a great American. And uh, I amass, uh, you know, some evidence that some some of it has been in print before, but some of it hasn't about the way he operates uh, and some of his own demons um, that uh, has led them to launch some ad hominem attacks on me and to deny everything I've said about uh, Ailes in a blanket way without saying specifically what's wrong. So, you know, what I say to uh, to readers is they have to make a simple choice. They have to decide based on knowing my work and, and Roger's work who they believe. And it's as simple as that. What are some of the things readers uh, will get that it's new insights into Ailes from the center? Well, um, I think people have known in the past that he's uh, he has a bit of a paranoid streak. There was a long article in Rolling Stone about that. But, uh, you know, I have some new evidence of, of that. Uh, and I have a scene in the book where um, Rupert Murdoch comes into work one day and he says, uh, you know, Roger's balmy. He's nuts. He's wacko. Uh, he spent time in a supply closet, working out of a supply closet, because he was so convinced that the rest of the News Corp building was bugged. Uh, then I have another story about how um, uh, Apple uh, was an advertiser on Fox, and then Steve was brought to Steve Jobs's attention that Glenn Beck had called the president a racist, and 
Jobs flew into one of his famous rages and said, I want all Apple ads off of Fox News. And no, this was on a Friday. No, it can't wait till Monday. I want them off now. And so uh, Omnicom executives from his ad agency had to get together with uh, News Corp people, Fox people, and go out on a Sunday out to Long Island and pull a digital file out to make sure that Jobs' request was... Uh, was granted. So, you know, I, I, I went uh, looking for uh, for things that had not been in print to um, to add to the record. There really have not been critical books about Roger Ailes that have come out. There's been criticism of him in magazine pieces, and this is not a book by any means, as I indicated, that's devoted to it. But since uh, the enemies are in the subtitle, I felt like I, I needed to do as much reporting as I could on on his enemies, and uh, I also have a chapter called Obama Derangement Syndrome about those who are are kind of driven uh, into this peculiar malady just at the very thought of Barack Obama. Uh, and, uh, you know, I worked hard on the reporting of it, and I, kind of, I stand by everything that's in the book. Let's talk just for a minute about the person who in 2012 was enemy number one. That's the former... Governor of Massachusetts, Mitt Romney, and let's hear a little bit of sound that was recorded of him at the home of Mark Later. There are 47% of the people who vote for the president no matter what. All right, there are 47% who are with him, who are dependent upon government, who believe that, that they are victims, who believe that government has a responsibility to care for them, who believe that they are entitled to health care, to food, to housing, to you name it. But that's, that's an entitlement, and government should give it to them. And they will vote for this president no matter what. And, and, I mean, the president starts off with 48, 49, 48. He starts off with a huge number. Uh, these are people who pay no income tax. 47% of Americans pay no income tax. You uh, give us a full story of Scott Prouty, uh, the bartender uh, and videographer of the Obama 47% video. Again, in uh, the center holds, what, what new do we learn about that moment? Well, um, I spent uh, a tremendous amount of time... Uh, many hours with with Scott. Uh, he went first went public uh, on Ed Schultz's show uh, earlier this year, but um, that just scratched the surface of his story, which I found absolutely fascinating and really wanted to convey to, to readers. Um, there's almost a prologue to what he did at that fundraiser which, that happened um, in 2005 when... Um, a woman was driving in the Everglades, and she drove her car into a canal, and Scott was working at a motorcycle dealership nearby, and he went running to the scene of the accident, and another uh, passerby had broken his arm trying to free um, the uh, open the door of the car, and when Scott got there, they said, you know, she's gone, dude, It's she's dead. And he jumped in anyway, and he finally was able to get the door open. Then he got a buoy knife. He cut the seat belt, freed this woman who floated to the surface. She was revived, and Scott was decorated as a local hero. Flash forward um, to, you know, seven years to uh, 2012, and when I was discussing with Scott Prudy, why did he do this? You know, he, he, he was pretty sure that it would be impossible for him to be a bartender anymore. He'd lose his job with the catering firm because there was a witch hunt on to find out who had done this. And he and he was worried that he was going to end up in the Everglades, as he put it to me, because he was going up against some very powerful people. 
And he said, you know, after uh, the uh, accident, I, I decided if you can jump in, you should jump in. And so for two weeks, he didn't do anything with the video. And he, uh, in the middle of the night, he gets up, he goes into the bathroom, he looks in the mirror, he says, you are an effing coward. And uh, the next day he starts posting small video clips and then he later releases the whole thing. Um, and it's in a chapter called Makers versus Takers, which was one of the big themes of this campaign. I've got a lot about Paul Ryan in that yeah. chapter um, because this was uh, arguably the most class-driven campaign since the election of 1896. I try to include a bunch of history in this, just to give it some context, at least a paragraph here and there uh, to fill the whole thing out. And on the 47%, just to give you a quick example, that was an issue in the 1972 campaign. Richard Nixon made an ad against George McGovern saying that uh, 47% of Americans were eligible for welfare under McGovern's plan. And then the announcer says, that's right, 47%. And when I heard that, I went, my God, this is really interesting. And something else, just quickly on on uh, Scott Prudy, is that it wasn't the forty seven percent that he first noticed. Chinese. It was Chinese slave labor, and he adopted the identity this this burly bartender, thirty eight year old bartender, right out of the Romney demographic, adopts the online identity of a young Chinese woman worker, uh, whom he calls Anne Anonymous, to keep his own identity hidden for a while, uh, and um, so. And he tries to bring attention to uh, uh, child labor abuses because Romney, in another part of the tape, had been bragging about buying this factory in China where people were paid a pittance. And he said when he was taping this thing, he said he felt like yelling from the bar, Governor Romney, would you want your wife working at this place that you say is so great in China that has barbed wire and awful working conditions? He said, are you going to bring that to Ohio next? Is that where the... And then he resolved, I'm going to try to keep this guy from being president. And arguably he did, because Obama came out of September with a seven-point lead. And if he had tripped up in that first debate the way he did, and he hadn't had the seven-point cushion that that uh, uh, Scott Prudy pretty much provided him, and he had slipped behind in the polls after the first debate, it might have been very hard for him to catch up and win the election. And this was a pivotal election in a lot of ways. As an objective writer, when you hear what Scott was telling you, <clears throat> and you you've been in enough, you've been in the pool in enough of these fundraisers to know that a candidate is trying to quickly summarize some key points, and he might betray some of his own personality and thinking. But I got the sense as I read, read it that Scott made a pretty quick decision about Mitt Romney and about his view of Chinese uh, labor, and and without maybe getting the fuller idea of of who Mitt Romney as a person was. And that was, there was something that, that I've struggled with about 2012 generally. It was that uh, Obama, you look at the electoral vote uh, and the, the team that Messina uh, put together, they kicked the crap out of him electorally. And they piled on every opportunity <clears throat> they could, including this. And you, and David Korn puts a video like this into the, uh, Twitter sphere and into the uh, uh, oh, cable exploded. chamber, it exploded. And this is because Scott made a five-minute decision that he didn't like the guy he was hearing at this bartending yep. gig. But see, if if that was uh, now you could you you 
you know, you could say that it was also because at an earlier fundraiser, Romney hadn't said thank you to right, Scott which when he I brought found... him a Diet Coke. You know, but these, these are the kinds of things that make history fascinating, you know, and you don't have to necessarily agree with his motivation in order to be intrigued by the right. details of it. Uh, but now, interestingly, he's uh, he's off to Bangladesh where he's, he's working for the uh, United Steelworkers on international labor issues. So he really got hooked on that and he did become pretty knowledgeable about some of those those labor abuses and uh, he wasn't wrong because when I researched it of course I had to do research on Prudy to make sure that he was on the up and up and that that story about the Everglades checked out and all that was normal reporting but uh, I also found that at the time Romney bought his six percent stake in the factory a guy named Chainsaw Al Dunlop was laying off a lot of people at Sunbeam and the the factory uh, Global Tech in China picked up a lot of those jobs of Americans that had, where they'd been laid off so I don't think that and and there were a lot of other examples uh, of Bain being involved in that and I do think that you're right that there was piling on on Bain and I I try to sort out you know uh, some of that in the book but um there was also not enough attention to um, the uh, the record uh, of uh, of outsourcing, which was a perfectly legitimate uh, campaign issue. It wasn't like some sort of trivial issue or something. If you're running for president to create jobs for Americans and you have a record as an outsourcer, it's hard to think of something more relevant. Well... Jonathan Alter, uh, author of The Center Holds, Obama and His Enemies. The election is now six months in our rearview mirror. Uh, this weekend, as this show is going on air, the president will be at the former estate of Walter Annenberg at Sunnylands, uh, spending two days engaging with uh, his counterpart from China. Uh, even this week, uh, you heard him in the Rose Garden announcing two new members of his national security team were in new positions. Let's hear that for a second, then one final question. Today... Uh, I am uh, wistful to announce that after more than four years of extraordinary service, uh, Tom has decided to step aside at the beginning of July. Uh, And I am extraordinarily proud uh, to announce my new national security advisor, our outstanding ambassador to the United Nations, Susan Rice, as well. as well as my nominee to replace Susan in New York, Samantha Power. So Jonathan Alter, with uh, three and a half years left of this, uh, the 44th president's term, um, he hinted maybe uh, six weeks or so ago that he wanted to perhaps go Bullworth uh, with any time <laughs> yeah, that was remaining. Uh, you couldn't pick uh, two people who might... Uh, have engendered more discussion than Susan Rice and Samantha Power for key posts on the top posts on his national security team. Uh, what do you see for the for the final three and a half years, and will there be another Alter book? Uh, my wife says no way, because um, to get this out um, this soon after the election uh, was uh, a lot of crimping on our family time. Um, so I don't know the answer to that question. The second question, it, it depends what happens in the second term. If it's exciting enough, then I might do another book, my wife notwithstanding. Um, 
I think uh, second-term presidents often have problems, um, but I think that basically his legacy is dependent on the economy. If if there are significant improvements, uh, if he can start to make progress on his goal, for instance, of making uh, the United States first again in uh, college graduation by 2020, which he's not going to be able to do. But if he can at least make some progress and make people feel that in that make or break moment for the middle class, there there was something behind that and that he really was moving forward uh, to help them adjust to the changes in the global economy. Um, then I think he'll be remembered as a very good president. Uh, of course, foreign policy can upset the best laid plans. Um, and in any event, he will be remembered uh, and is determined to be remembered for more than being the first African-American president. Because now Obamacare, for better or for worse, is the law of the land. And the Republicans can talk about repealing it, but that's a fantasy. It's not going to happen. He's got the veto pen. Uh, and it's a pretty significant piece of legislation. And I think immigration, which will likely go through, even if he didn't have much to do with that one, it will be on his watch. Um, the same thing with all presidents. Uh, and he got a lot of points on the board in the first couple of years. So um, despite all the problems he's having right now, and some of them are very troubling to me, yep. uh, I think he's um, going to, uh, and he's on track to at least have a pretty good chance uh, of having uh, having an impressive uh, legacy, but we um, we don't know yet, and it's I think you can tell from my halting approach to this question. I'm much more comfortable with trying to puzzle through what happened. This is the historian uh, cap than I am in being a soothsayer, and and it's kind of like predicting the stock market. There's so many factors at play. And, of course, presidents go up and down and up and down. So anybody who says, is it too late? Is it over? Uh, the media won't allow, uh, allow that. The optics of your show don't allow for a static narrative. So he's down right now, but that just means that he's preparing for his comeback. And then after he has his comeback, then that's preparing for his fall again. And then a comeback and then a fall. So unless it's something like Watergate, which was what the Republicans think it is, and there's no indication that it is, unless it's something that is, you know, eight or nine on a Richter scale, as troubling as it might be, it it doesn't, it, it won't be remembered much 25 years from now. Uh, and, uh, you know, even something like the IRS, there have been these sorts of IRS stories in uh, Roosevelt, we were talking about him, he was way more explicit. He would sick the IRS on people like Nixon did. Um, and that's not really part of Roosevelt's legacy, you know, because other more important things came along. So, um, one of the, you know, I, I'm pleased that this was the first book out about the campaign, and I want people to buy it for Father's Day and all the normal like publishing things. But what I really want is for it to have some staying power as context, so that uh, people in the, you know thoughtful people like you in the in the future will say, you know, what can I read to give me a sense of what it was like in 2011 and 2012? Yeah. I mean, to bring it back to the end, uh, when I was out in San Francisco and listening to Messina and hearing him tell the story about how 
President Obama summoned him to swim with him in the Pacific Ocean and said, yeah. uh, you're going to lose your job in the White House. Right. I want you to take over uh, the campaign. And what does he do when he's in the idle and glorious uh, sun of the Pacific? He papers over his windows in his hotel room uh, with crepe paper, uh, grabs every book he can on presidential campaigns right. going back as many years, reads them all to try and find threads between them that will help him inform him of how to construct this campaign and doesn't see daylight except for room service for about 12 days. And I'm thinking as <laughs> I read... He was saving that for his speeches and memoirs because he didn't tell me that one. I got the surf story, but and, not the rest of it. And, and Well, I'm yeah. just thinking, Jonathan, that uh, the scope of the center holds is so broad about what happened in, in 11 and 12 that uh, 12 years, 20 years from now, as we look back at uh, Boys on the Bus, What It Takes, some of the other great tomes of different campaigns, they'll look at, at your piece and says and say, this is a pretty straightforward account of what happened. So thanks a lot for joining thanks. us. Thanks. Thanks very much, Josh. I appreciate that. History in the making. Sirius XM 124. This is POTUS. said at the top of the show that we have something special lined up to wrap up episode 105 of Polyoptics. Well, as Ronald Reagan would say, I found myself earlier this week on the glorious campus of Stanford University, part of an annual public relations conference I try to get to when time permits. Among many other speakers, we heard from Jim Messina, as I mentioned earlier with Jonathan Alter, as well as General Stan McChrystal, the man who ran the war in Afghanistan before tendering his resignation to the president following the publication in Rolling Stone of disrespectful remarks by his staff aimed at Vice President Biden, among others. The author of that piece, Michael Hastings, a prior guest on our show. With my microphone in my backpack, I wanted to try a field interview, complete with background ambiance of chirping birds. It's a technique I hope to use later this month in Aspen at the Aspen Ideas Festival, where General McChrystal promises to unveil a new strategy for universal national service which might address a number of challenges and inequities we see in military service today. So I'll try to sit down with him and others in Colorado in the weeks to come. But first, here's 12 minutes or so with Christy Hefner, the former chairwoman and chief executive officer of Playboy Enterprises, the iconic American publishing firm founded by her father, Hugh, in 1953. Ms. Hefner, now executive chairman of Canyon Ranch Enterprises, was one of our speakers focusing her talk on creativity, and leadership. When she left Playboy in 2009, shortly after President Obama's inauguration, she could have done a thousand things. But one thing she sought out to do was work with the Center for American Progress, the think tank founded by former White House Chief of Staff John Podesta, that was sometimes referred to during the Bush years as the government in exile. Here's our talk with Christie. Imagine a warm, early summer afternoon on a bucolic campus in Northern California. If chirping birds aren't your thing, my apologies. So I'm here on the beautiful campus of Stanford University with Christy Hefner, the chairman of Canyon Ranch Enterprises, and we're at this great conference. How's it been for you so far? Well, I've enjoyed it very much, not really knowing quite what to expect and being very impressed by both the people I've met but also the diversity of the programs that we've been exposed to. What was the enticement to you to come? What, was, uh, what brought you here? Well, as is often the case in life, I was asked by a friend as a favor, Marjorie Krauss, yep. who's the owner and CEO of APCO, is someone I've known for a number of years, and she and Betty Hudson 
were double teaming me to see if I would come out and speak. And then the attraction of having the chance to meet the other participants and be here for the Stanford Day and yesterday was definitely part of the appeal. What thought did you put uh, into the uh, conversation that you had, uh, innovation and creative leadership? What was the, the driving idea behind you getting in front of 200 people and telling the story that you told? Well, I'd no, never spoken exactly on that topic before. I did speak at a conference in Europe on creativity, but this was a slightly different twist for me, and it was the topic that Marjorie and Betty thought would be a nice intersection between things that I had done, other parts of the program, and the interests of the group. And so I tried to approach it from the point of view of aspects in my own work experience that were indicative of innovative thinking and how to balance creativity with risk-taking, but also thinking about the group itself and the roles that many of the people here play in their organization. So, as you know, one of the things I talked about was the opportunity that people who are communications and public affairs professionals have to not just be amplifying the message of the organization out to key stakeholders, but to be the connector of feedback from those key constituents, whether they're reporters or analysts or even employees, back to leadership. Um, and so 200 people got your message. What's the feedback been like? Well, it's been very positive, but I'm always conscious of the fact that the people who didn't think that what you had to say was relevant or interesting are not the people who come up to you afterwards and speak to you. I'm actually always very interested in seeing formal feedback when I do speaking, and I know that this organization does that. We're all filling so, out our questionnaires. Yes, so I will find out. But I have to say, anecdotally, the feedback's been very positive. Um, right now, you are uh, you stepped down as uh, president and CEO and chairman of Playboy Enterprises in 2011, mm -hmm. and you're now uh, chairman of Kenya Ranch Enterprises. What is, for you, the um, evolution or the next, what, how, how should one read the step from basically a, a publishing business, but you also told us in your remarks that it's more of a, an entertainment business and a, and a video business or, or a TV channel, to an experiential process that is both the original properties of the ranch and the extension of the brands? Well, I had been on the advisory board of Canyon Ranch for about a dozen years, so I had the benefit of history with both the founders and the yes, and you know the chance to really be exposed to the rather remarkable, in my opinion, work that they do in integrative and holistic, healthy living. Oddly as it might seem, I do actually think there are some similarities. Um, they are both founder-driven companies and very much mission-driven. Uh, they also, in many ways, sort of were the original definer of a space. Um, and in Playboy's case, I don't mean the um, sexiness of Playboy. I really mean the idea of a lifestyle magazine, right. which really hadn't existed before Playboy. And then, of course, the brand became a lifestyle brand in the time that I was there. And in the case of the Zuckermans, really the idea of a, a health resort was unheard of 30-plus years ago. And even today, there aren't that many. Um, on a personal level, having been the longest-serving female CEO of a New York Stock Exchange company, I was just ready to start a new chapter that involved a little more of a portfolio of activities than one all-consuming job, and yet wanted very much to work, 
and thought I would do mostly uh, for-profit board work and then not-for-profit work. So I do work with a think tank in Washington, D.C., the Center for American Progress, right? And I had been working with the Columbia Journalism Review, which is a not-for-profit magazine and website that deals a lot with the future of standards in journalism and business models for media, which I care about. But the Canyon Ranch opportunity came along because having been defined as a hospitality business delivering their programming at bricks-and-mortar properties, they were actually interested in seeing if I could help them figure out how to take the content and the programs and the courses and the recipes and the brand and extend it beyond the properties. So after some consulting work, we formed this new company, Canyon Ranch Enterprises, which I am now executive chairman of. And so in some ways, I'm creating strategies for content across media platforms and creating strategies for extending a brand through licensing. And that is similar to what I did when I was at Playboy. Almost goes from the original printed platform of Playboy to what was during the 70s and 80s and the 60s, the clubs and then the video Mm -hmm. and then the channels uh, and the expansion of that to... Uh, in, in, into physical spaces, Canyon Ranch goes from physical spaces into more virtual spaces. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I think both companies and both brands will be their strongest if they can combine a high-touch experiential aspect to their business model with a high-tech you know, digital distribution aspect to stay connected to customers who've been to the physical places, but then also reach that larger audience of aspirational customers who may not have had the chance to go. So uh, shifting about 3,000 miles to the east of Washington, D.C., uh, your work with Podesta and Nira and CAP, uh, old friends of mine, um, how did that start and what kinds of things have you been doing with them? It's actually the only thing I did post-Playboy that I sought out. Um, Everything else from Canyon Ranch to Columbia Journalism Review to my work on television and the Washington Speakers Bureau came to me. But my love as a student was public policy and law and politics and it's actually in some way or another what I thought I would do professionally and even though I spent my life in a corporate setting I always stayed connected to both working for candidates I cared about and working for organizations and around issues that I feel are important so I knew John and I knew Cap and had actually done an event for them during the campaign and I had worked for Barack Obama since the Senate primary, which was a race that really very few people thought he could win. So actually the week of the inaugural, the first time um, when I was in Washington, I went to see John and I said I didn't particularly want to move to Washington and I wasn't interested in exploring work in the administration, but I did want to get engaged in some way. Um, It seemed to me that CAP had a very good opportunity to be kind of an ideas factory for the administration, which was really John's vision coming out of the Clinton administration, was to bring together a really smart group of people that could take a longer-term view, which is very difficult in any administration when you're kind of a captive of the crisis of the moment, and marry it with a very politically astute group of people in operation. So it wasn't just about publishing interesting white papers, but actually infusing your ideas into the political process. And what I suggested I thought I could do by way of adding value was to use the contacts that I had made over the years to connect the fellows at CAP as well as the political arm of CAP with really smart people around the country who were leaders in both different policy areas and politically 
to provide some outside-the-beltway thinking into the think tank, and that's how the relationship began. A lot of people said, and I think with a great degree of truth, that CAP was a government in exile from 2001 to 2009. And uh, people like John and Nira and Jennifer Palmieri gave them a platform to speak out when they saw fit. But you just mentioned, could it be an ideas factory for the current administration? Has it turned out that way in your analysis? I think it has. And in fact, I think that, candidly, John is one of the few people outside of President Obama's very close circle of um, advisors and friends who has the ear of the president, and I think that's been beneficial. And the work that they have done, whether it was on uh, uh, repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell and gay marriage or on um, withdrawal from Iraq or on health care, unquestionably infused uh, policy positions that the administration took and legislation that was supported in Congress. Now, I think what has been a disappointment to everybody at CAP and in the administration, and I think many Americans generally, is that we don't seem to have been able to build enough bipartisan support to tackle major issues where CAP's also done very good work, whether that's on energy policy or on reforming the tax code, that would seem to be the kinds of things that the parties could come together around. Now, obviously, we're only a partial way through the second term, so we'll have to see what happens next. But I think there, most people, myself included, would have predicted at the beginning of the first term, given the magnitude of the problems facing the country and the sense that a lot of people had that we'd kick the can down the road too long on these issues, that we'd have taken some big steps on more than just the health care bill. Uh, they're ringing the bell for us to go back into our next session, but last question, Christy Hefner. Uh, as we look forward to the next administration, there's another woman from Chicago who is being talked about a lot as the next presidential candidate and a previous presidential candidate, former Secretary Hillary Clinton. How are you looking at the 2016 field, is it, or is it too early to, to close the book on the Obama years yet? It seems too early, not so much because, of course, we actually need the administration to govern and hopefully to indeed get some major additional legislative victories, but also because I think it's too early to know what the mood of the country is going to be. I could make the argument that having nothing to do with their merits, and I actually was a strong uh, supporter of uh, Hillary Clinton's first run for the Senate when many people thought that she would not do the work, would be too polarizing, and I felt strongly that she would be an excellent senator, and I think she was, and I think she was an excellent Secretary of State. But one could make the case that by 2016, the country may not be interested in embracing either a Hillary Clinton or, for that matter, a Jeb Bush, having more to do with the sense that it's a backwards look than anything to do with the qualifications or qualities of the individual. So... I'm even when I do Morning Joe, I tend to participate less in the speculation about 2016 than the issues of the moment. Christy Hefner, a pioneering woman from a pioneering family, a person whose family has been with us, what, for 60 years in terms of history, uh, and now uh, executive chairwoman of Canyon Ranch and very much involved in the national dialogue. Thanks very much for joining us on Polyoptics from the beautiful campus of Stanford University. My pleasure. Thank you. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on SiriusXM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States.
Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual. Think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.